the final episode of our trilogy of guests born in and around the Birmingham area, we bring you a guest who is not a sports star. For those of you who are not sports fans, this may be a relief. That said, one of my earliest memories of our guests was competing with him at Alexander Stadium, home of the athletics for the recent Birmingham Commonwealth Games. We were competing there for our school. We were both doing the high jump together as part of a team of athletes, an area our guest excelled in on the day. Just one year later, he would be back. I would not, as I was no longer eligible. His experience this time would be a wholly different experience, as he was the school's sole competitor, and therefore competed in every event. He's always been his own person, and I greatly admire him for his focus, determination, creativity, and considered but often alternative perspectives on the world. Today, we're going to be talking to him about his creative side, and we'll be working with him on a thought experiment. My guest is Birmingham-born Carrick Sadell. Carrick has always had a creative side and comes from a creative family. Carrick was part of the Birmingham music scene and we regularly spent time together as we were both in bands that played across Birmingham regularly around the millennium. Music has always been a passion for Carrick, but his other clear passion is art. Carrick's work has been displayed in a range of venues and galleries, and most recently his work was included in the Birmingham Art Book, a book that has been described as where local artists shine a light on the grand and the humdrum with equal affection. Their love for the modern city is evident and their pride in its heritage comes to the fore in this lovely book. I'm a huge fan of Carrick's art, particularly cityscapes and his use of light. He describes this approach as, Light is the single most important element I try to capture, but I also want to convey the feel, the mood and the atmosphere of the scene from its inception. The smell of the sea in the harbour, the cold of the fog as it rolls into the early morning city or the heat of the midday sun in the Spanish desert. All of these things get caught in the paint and they live on in the memory. For me, I get all of this from Carrick's paintings and more. Like the photography of Liam Wong, some of the cityscapes have cinematographic tones similar to Blade Runner. That's all well and good, you say, but what is he doing on a podcast that goes out to the business community? Well, Today, we're not only going to talk to Carrick about him, his art and his connection to the city, but we're also going to conduct a thought experiment. The business area I look after is sometimes called HR services and organisational change. What this doesn't convey is the work we can support in organisational design. Organisational design is a discipline all in itself and far too often gets confused or mislabeled. When I ask people about their business's organisational design, they often tell me about their organisational structure. The structure is important, but it's only a small part of the organisational design, and if it is viewed in isolation, isolation can be doomed to fail. So, for today, we thought we would strip back the organisational design concept and look at it from the perspective of a business made up of just one person. We will focus on some of the simple elements that should be familiar to all and ask some questions that you may want to think about in any organisational design you undertake. When I spoke to Carrick about this, he initially wondered if I was speaking to the right person. I assured him I was. By day, he's a teacher. This is his full-time and only job. As such, you may think that his painting is a side hustle or a second income. Carrick, though, is very clear and said to me, it's a hobby. I'm not a professional artist. I sell a couple of paintings maybe a year. This, too, is an important part of what we want to explore today because it's apparent that lots of businesses are focusing on the cost of living crisis and seeing individuals leave their roles, moving away from their chosen vacation or taking on second jobs. It's quite typical for these to be with the likes of Uber or Deliveroo or with a delivery firm. No one is doing those additional jobs for the love of it. What we all dream of is having a talent, a passion and being able to monetize what we love. If you get this right, people say... You will never work another day in your life. So stick with us today. 
And listeners, we find all out about Carrick, his art, and at the same time, we conduct an informal thought experiment through guided conversation to understand what Carrick might need to consider if he ever chose to become a full-time professional painter. What would it take to come up with an organisational design for one? Welcome, Carrick. Thank you, Steve. It's great to be here. Uh, it's brilliant to have you on. So, Carrick, I've summed up your artwork and we'll ensure our listeners have access to view your work online. Um, and th- they'll also get a chance to follow you on social media through various websites and uh, opportunities they've got there. But tell us about the art from your perspective. Well, um, my artwork is very much about the view of the world from you know my own perspective you know a lot of people enjoy painting abstracts people are painting landscapes mine is is all about cityscapes and buildings and the viewpoints of someone who travels around the world a lot i grew up in lots of different places in the world and got to see lots of different things so when i look at a city i see um i see the composition of the different structures and cultural elements not just the buildings themselves but the people that live there as well and that really comes across in your artwork i mean you've summed it up beautifully there and what i'm hearing as you're kind of describing it is someone who's really clear about what they're trying to achieve what they're trying to convey and really understands what being living in a city is all about Uh, and it's not obviously just cities that you paint but clearly the fact that you're in the Birmingham art book means you've captured something of that city so how did you get involved and be selected to be in the Birmingham art book? Um, Well I was approached to be in the book uh, through my website Um, I was approached by a lady called Emma Bennett who was the curator for the book now I I get a lot of um, uh, people sending me messages on my website and many of them offering me things and asking me questions about the artwork. Um, but with this one from Emma, it was um, an invitation. So I did a bit of research. I had a look and I saw that she has produced a series of other books based on other cities. Um, and they were all really highly impressive books. And I just thought, well, um, I'm not going to miss the chance to be part of this. And particularly because the majority of my work is about Birmingham, I thought, well, it seems like a perfect fit for me. Yeah, absolutely. And that's one of the things I wanted to ask you about. I mean, it's growing up in Birmingham, how did it shape who you've become and how does it shape your art? Well, I grew up in a lot of different places and uh, I grew up in America and I grew up in um, Spain and um, in England. So I would, you know, looking at the city changing over time, you know, I I remember being in Birmingham when the old bullring was there and it was being torn down. And for years, the the rotunda was hidden away behind boards and you couldn't see it from the street. So over the past 20 years or so, I've seen a, a gradual shift and change in the city. And with some of my paintings, especially some of the earlier ones, if you were to lay them side by side with my current ones, you will almost see buildings that aren't there anymore or ones that have changed so you know the art making the artwork isn't just about making a picture it's about recording time 
I can completely see that. And I've only just finished reading a book called Second City. And Second City was all about the history of Birmingham. And one of the things they talk about in there is that it's a constant change in landscape. Um, and, I, you know, that wasn't one of the things we talked about before coming on here. But I thought, you know, this is really relevant. What you're describing is the same as what I'm seeing in the book Second City. Um, and I, I'm really seeing that you're capturing, I see the light that reflects what I understand Birmingham to be. I see the techniques that you use that really reflect these landmarks back at me. And I do see it changing and I do see the history. So mm. when you're kind of selecting a paint, painting or a scene to paint, you know, what goes through your head in terms of how you choose what to paint? Well, I have a very clear idea in my mind of the kind of things that inspire me in terms of design. You know, it's it's very easy to, to go out and just take a photograph of something and then just make a slavish copy of it. But just taking a photograph of something doesn't necessarily mean the, the design elements are there. You know, when I'm thinking about the composition of the artwork, I'm thinking about things like, you know, the the the, the structure, the, the rule of thirds, the golden ratio. I'm thinking about positive and negative space. I'm thinking about complementary color schemes. I'm thinking about light and dark. So I'm thinking about all of these different elements when I put uh, all these elements into into an image, and sometimes you are you are free to embellish and take things away and add them in. You know, one of the good things about painting compared to say photography is photography is all about capturing what is there and then, whereas sometimes painting can be about you know making decisions and choices. A camera can't make a decision for you, whereas as as a painter you can. And you know you may you may think you know this would be an interesting piece if it was set at seven o'clock at night compared to twelve o'clock in the afternoon where there's no shadow. So you can paint these elements into it, and you can make those creative choices. That's incredible, and I mean you've obviously got a real talent. It's been recognised by Emma Bayer wanting to put you um, into the book. And, you know, to give some examples to our listeners, it's. I've been able to kind of almost objectively see it multiple times as well. I remember a number of years ago walking into a gallery and seeing a piece I really liked. And I, while I was in the gallery, I thought, oh, let's read about the artist. And I found out it was you. I didn't know it was you going into the uh, gallery. I had no idea that you were exhibiting there. Similarly, not that long ago, only last year, and it was a day we had ended up meeting together. Um, we were at a mutual friend's house. You hadn't arrived at the time, but I was looking at some artwork on his wall. And his wife does a lot of artwork. So I knew that they got a love of art in the house. But I thought, I wonder who these two pieces are by, because they really stood out for me. So I asked Charlie, our friend. Um, and I said, who are these by Charlie? And he said, um, you know, those are by Carrick, you know, so twice without knowing your paintings were your paintings. I've spotted them and gone, wow, I really love these paintings. You know, Emma, I think, must have done the same when she's kind of put you there. But how does that make you feel when people are able to kind of give you objective feedback like that? I, th I think that is is quite important. Uh, you know, I love it. I, th I think it's great when. Um, I have somebody who I who I don't know is able to kind of send me a, a message or a comment about something that I've made. You know, um, you know, if you, if you make a drawing and show it to your mum, she's going to say it's fantastic. Um, uh, so being able to put something out there in the world and then people have a positive reaction to it is is fantastic. And it's, uh, when it comes back to me that people are enjoying what I'm doing, uh, it kind of makes it all worthwhile. 
Yeah, and I mean, you you describe your art as being a hobby. I mean, that really surprised me when we talked about it before. You know, I assume because of the level of capability you've got that this must be like your primary role or it was an income stream. In in our world, with HR and L&D people may potentially listening to this, I, I might have considered it a second job or a side mm. hustle. Have you ever been tempted to make it a career, even though I know to date you haven't? Um. Yeah, I mean to make it a to make it a second career would be amazing. Um, I, but when people ask me about it, I, I liken it to um, playing in a in a rock band. You know, you're kind of you're kind of hoping for that time when you make that break and you can and you can live from it. But um, right now, I paint because I enjoy it. I paint because I want to make uh, interesting things and. Um, I, yeah, I just went it out there in the world and I want people to see it and just enjoy the actual process of the making. Funny thing is, is once the painting is actually finished, I don't really think about it again. I, it's, the, it's the actual making side of it that I find quite interesting. When it's finished, it's almost like I'm done with that now. Let's have a look at what's next. Wow, that's really interesting, particularly when you've kind of looked at it like as a rock star, because, you know, both of us would have had that dream at some point. We both played in bands. And mm. I was just thinking that through as you were describing that. And I was thinking when I was playing in a band, one of the things I loved about playing music was you got to play that song multiple times to get the mm. reaction multiple times. And it sounds like for the art, it's slightly different. So tell us about that difference. Well, I think, yeah, the actual act, physical act of, of painting is quite cathartic. You know, there's a lot of um, thought and uh, sentiment that goes into it and the actual structure. You know, there's been plenty of times when I've set fire to a painting because it wasn't going right. Um, <laughs> but it's, it, is, it is somewhat cathartic because it's almost like getting everything out. Some people throw their paint around and splash it around. And I've, I've done that. You know, I've done that in my student days as an abstract artist but then as I start to hone my vision of the world and my the way I see the world becomes a bit more sophisticated my artwork becomes a bit more sophisticated and I think you know having a piece of artwork out in the public realm for someone to see is much like you know someone playing a gig and, and getting out there and playing music for people to listen to because ultimately you know you, you make things for yourself but you want people to see them as well and same as a musician wants people to listen to the songs that they've written, you know, they want to tell a story and they want people to hear that story. Wonderful. I am wondering now though, if you ever set any of your bandmates on fire though. So go ahead, tell me what you're currently no, I'm not working on. to talk about that. <laughs> what are you currently working on then, Carrie? Um, I'm currently working on a series of paintings. I, because I work in oils, I tend to have about four or five on the go. Um, because oils take so long to dry so whilst one is drying or curing you you know you can work on another so um, um, I'm working on a series of building facades or the fronts of buildings based on a trip to Manchester so I'm looking at things like um, you know graffiti and buildings and uh, um, steel staircases I'm looking at um, street views of London at night because we've recently been to London um, looking at some other Birmingham scenes as, as well, because they're, they're always going to be part of what I do. And I also have some compositions based on rainy cities and things. So I've, I've about four or five on the go. Fantastic. And that, that's incredible to kind of hear that as well. I think I can understand that from a musical point of view. You know, when I'm writing music, I can write three or four songs and not complete 
all of them they're kind of things i go back to and think let's have a look at this or while i'm waiting to record that i can be playing around and trying mm. this so that really makes sense to me um and i can really see how those things kind of work what i want to get into today is to talk about kind of business and try and link some of this stuff in and i think you've been really clear that this is a hobby it's clearly a hobby that you're passionate about it comes a across really well in the way you talk about things the clarity you thought you've got the fact that even when something's going wrong you kind of you've got a way of dealing with that and then focusing on where you got next and i think that probably helps having multiple mm-hmm. things going on but in terms of um what we're looking at today in terms of the thought experiment it's kind of getting into that space of imagining a world where you decided i'm going to be a professional artist I know, you know, we're just about to come into the new term for teaching. So you are definitely a teacher. You're definitely going to be doing that. But for today, we're going to go into an imaginary world because it's a thought experiment and nothing more than that. Mm. So you're clearly confident, comfortable and happy talking about your art. How comfortable and confident would you be talking about something more alien to yourself, like the business world? Well, to be fair, I, I don't know anything about running a business myself. I've, n- I've never been a business owner. Um, you know, I've marketed my own artwork and things, but I've never run a business. So I think m- much of it will be kind of a- an abstract thought process for me as well, having to think of how you would approach these things. That's brilliant. And I think that's what will be really interesting for the people that are listening to here, as well as finding out more about your art, which I promise them will definitely be interesting and something they should focus some time and effort on. Um, They'll get a lot out of it, in my opinion. I think what will be good is to recognise that sometimes when I'm supporting businesses, there are people I'm talking to that have blind spots or um, have no idea where to start on a particular piece of work they're looking at and there are others that I would class as experts and know exactly what they want to do but they want to get it across to me so that I can help them deliver it so with that in mind I think that the f- idea of the thought experiment today is about looking at an organizational design for one and an organizational design as I said in the intro is very different to an organizational structure the two are not the same things to re- to remove that kind of um misinterpretation from the equation the thought experiment is focusing on how do you develop an organizational design for one Um, we will imagine for a second that you have decided to become a full-time professional artist and we will explore the development of an imaginary business model any prying private questions we don't need to it's a thought experiment so feel free to make up some answers this afternoon as well it'll just help the experiment as we go along by the end of the conversation our aim will be to have a will be to have considered some of the key elements of your organizational design and the points in the journey when it would need to change we won't answer a lot of the questions this afternoon but what we will do is walk through what questions you may need to answer to help our listeners potentially look at organizational design in a brand new way away from the distracting focus of an organizational structure so let's begin so for this conceptual business that we're doing just for a thought experiment if you were going to get it to work as a business venture you would need to look at it commercially this is what investors banking facilities grants loan providers shareholders etc will be interested in have you ever calculated how many paintings you would need to sell on an annual monthly weekly daily basis to be successful as a standalone artist yeah, um, I've looked into what you would need to be able to produce, and obviously various factors would be uh, involved. Obviously, you know your popularity as an artist means that mm. you can command 
a certain price for your work. Um, different artists will price their work in different ways. Some price them based on size. So some will have a very specific unit of measure for the size of the work that they create. Others will, um, will, will calculate their cost uh, of the price based on the, the materials and the time that they've spent making it. Um, so, or, you know, how, um, in demand their work is so there are different factors i looked into it and you know i, I would need to be making at least three thousand a month to be able to kind of live comfortably off that and that would i in terms of the paintings i would be producing you know you'd, you'd have to be producing 20 paintings a month something like that which if you were doing it every single day probably might not be an issue but if you are working in oils it takes time and, and to build things up and could you produce repeatedly 20 different things mm. a month? You know, so there, yeah, there's multiple factors that are involved in that. And then obviously you have your costs like um, have, having a studio. Do you work from home or do you hire a studio? If so, you need power to run it. You need, you know, your materials, which would obviously come off the costs and you'd have to claim those back. Um, you would have to think about the traveling to clients to galleries you know if you're a landscape artist you know one of my favorite artists um, pete brown he uh, down in bath he has to travel all around bath and london and things like that to, to produce his artwork and you look at his website and he's producing hundreds and hundreds of pieces and yeah so there's obviously that investment in there that's brilliant. So you've summarized a lot of different things there, and they are definitely the things that you need to be kind of taken into consideration. And quite often when I'm in a conversation with a business and talking to similar similar things, this, listening to all of that, and I'm looking at which are the factors that are variables and which are the factors that are fixed. And I think the variable stuff is great because those are the things that mean you can move the parameters around and then you can go, actually, if we shift that and we can move that, we can make this business work. Or do you know what? I can get us to a point that you don't need 20 paintings a day. I could get us to 10 because we could do this or we could do that. Mm. I think when we're talking about something so personal as painting, to kind of commoditize it and turn it into this kind of um, vast machine, if you like, where you're kind of turning over at such a number of paintings. Do you feel you'd lose some of the love of the painting if you were working like that? I think there is a danger of that. I think if it got to the point where you you knew that your whole income, your fa you know, your your, the, your family, depending on living indoors, came from producing your painting. There may be a, a pressure there that you never had before, which means that something that you you did because you enjoy it and because you love it then takes on a completely different meaning altogether. Um, you know, some I've 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 seen interviews. I've spoken to artists who were in that position where they they ended up disliking it because you know it, it it took the joy away from it when it became the business that was something they had to do yeah and i think in when we're talking about art i think people can get their heads around that they can kind of go there's got to be something i'm doing around the art that makes me love it and if i love it then i don't want to lose that love by it being productized by it being turned into a productivity element but then other people people do do that other people yeah. see their paintings purely as products that are there to be made and there's nothing wrong with that and they, it's just a, i think it's the mindset you know if you have the, the mindset of producing that product because that is what you produce then I think that's what can help someone drive that business further if it is something that they were just doing once in a while 
you know, I don't, I don't think it works in the same way. Absolutely. But it, I think it's it's really important to understand that. So, you know, if this was going to be your business, that, that would be one of the questions I would ask, because I'd be thinking about what parameters could we move. I don't want you to be demotivated. I don't want the business to fail. So I want to make sure I understand all of the things that keep the love in place for it for you, as well as make it productive at the other end. Mm. And it, if it, one of the ideas that I've kind of uh, thought around because you can do it in other businesses is if if I said to you I've got 10 painting painters waiting in the background and they can all paint the same style that you can and they could reproduce your work how comfortable would you be having all these people reproducing similar style work to yours um you know there's nothing new in in what I do um I think what I do, I do for me, and I and and I, I make stuff that is personal to me. But you know, if there if there are other people in the world who are producing similar things, and I know there are, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, I think if someone was making an exact copy and then trying to pass that off, then that's a different matter altogether. Um, you know, I, I've I've seen issues where people have had copyright problems, where people have tried to make copies or forgeries or um, replicas of their work, and it and it becomes a problem because not only are they copying your work, but if they go out there and and you know produce a bad reputation for you, then that's going to be something very difficult for somebody to kind of to rectify to fix and so you know having 10 people replicating what i make i don't think people would be interested i don't think people would want that you know andy warhol did that um when he had you know the factory and he had people re reproducing uh prints but the idea was that the prints were supposed to be reproductions they were supposed to be you know affordable for the general public you know i think when someone when someone buys a painting they like to know that they are buying a one-off. It's the only one of its kind in the world. It's like somebody buying a Ferrari, you know, or a Lamborghini. You know, there's only one, there's only the one of that piece in the world because it was made by hand, you know. And I think I think there's merit in that. And I think if it had, if somebody was just hiring people to to make replicas of their work, I don't think people would be that interested. Yeah, and I get exactly where you're coming from. And I think in a business sense, if I was talking to someone who'd come up with a new way of making light bulbs, they'd probably be quite happy commoditizing that and making as many as they could a day as long as the demand was there and the business mm -hmm. were there. But there are a lot of businesses I talk to who might have a similar product in terms of, say, a light bulb, but they are so passionate about what they design, they don't want other people making it they want to kind of keep the purity of what's there and i think it's really important to understand that in a business because businesses don't spend enough time typically looking at what their vision is what their values are what it is that made that business successful and quite often when we see businesses go through change we see it start to unravel a bit when the core ideas and the core concepts are lost but it's some people would call these the softer skills when we're talking through these elements for me those are the hard bits because you can build the business model quite quickly you can say right how can we get to x amount of paintings per day per week per month who else could we bring in you know how much resource can we do how much could we get you to do but if we lose sight of what motivates you what's important to you what your values are then over time it's just going to unravel and when it unravels you've got yourself a whole problem to kind of deal with so you're kind of coming up with some great stuff to think about here. You mentioned premises before. You mentioned costs. Obviously, with the cost of living crisis at the moment, 
prices are going up for fuel, prices are going to be going up for materials. Um, someone told me the other day that they'd got a quote for some steel for their building. Mm. And the quote that they got would only last for 24 hours because within 24 hours, the price would have changed because yeah. the market is that volatile. So in the area you work in, if you were setting this up as a business, have you got any volatility like that that you'd need to take into consideration, do you think? Um, I think if, if you were in a situation where you were selling your artwork as your as your main source of income and you're essentially selling a premium luxury item, aren't you? You know, if, yeah. if you think about it and, and I, I suppose the, the, the issues you may have to come across are, you know, if, if the market's fluctuating, people don't have the expendable income to be able to, to be able to buy these items, then you may be in a situation where you're producing and making things, but not mm. selling. So you're then left with a lot of inventory that just is taking up space. It's it's not shifting. It's costing to, to make. Um, you know, in terms of things like oil paints and brushes and things like that, um, I haven't really seen too much kind of affected by that itself because you tend to have enough of these things in the studio. So you're working. And then, you know what, if you end up running out of paints, you, you pick something else up you know you turn your hand to something else you know maybe if you can't afford oil paint anymore pick up some acrylics if you can't work with acrylics pick up some watercolors or if you want to go something different you know try 3d or clay or you know we live in a, in a digital world now of nfts and things like that where people are producing digital artwork and selling these things um quite well and you know i don't particularly understand that side of it myself <laughs> but you know but there is a market for it and you know, it may, it may, you know, five years from now, it may turn around that people aren't interested in physical paintings anymore and it'll all be digital. Look at the way music's going. I mean, you're doing all my work for me here, Carrick, which is wonderful because you're basically looking at some of the things I would naturally ask you, you know, where does the future go? How prepared are you for that? How could you adapt to make your business model work in a different set of circumstances? Because these are all the kind of questions I'd want to ask a business because it's almost a bit like doing scenario planning. You look at what happens in scenario A, what happens in scenario B, what happens in scenario C, because all of them can happen. And I think we've seen that a lot in the last couple of years. So when you've got things like COVID happening, when you've got things like the cost of living crisis, every business has had to pause and kind of think, what does that mean for my business and how can I adapt? And I've seen some brilliant examples of companies adapt quickly and make the most of it. So a company, for example, who were producing um, tents effectively, um, they want to be called marquees, but I've seen them, I'd call them tents. Um, mm. And uh, when they were kind of realised that people weren't going to be able to use them because weddings were cancelled, etc. Yeah. They suddenly found a way of using them. And the way they were using them were, was to provide them for um, the COVID centres. Um, and suddenly they got this demand that was off the scale that they didn't have before. But they pivoted and they'd kind of found a different route forward. Um, yeah. And that's an interesting way to look at the world. And you're, you're clearly doing that in this experiment. Tell us more about your, your thoughts. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's... The, the, the idea of being able to change and to be able to pivot and to, to, to roll with the punches, you know, when it came down to my teaching, I had to change how I taught because during COVID, I spent, you know, nearly a year teaching from home. So I had to adapt the way I taught and I had to set up all this equipment in my house to be able to do that so my students could be taught. You know, when it came to painting, I was able to produce my artwork and luckily, um, businesses start to set up an infrastructure where you 
it made things a lot easier in in some way some people people didn't like the fact you couldn't go to shops anymore other people loved it the fact yeah. that you could order anything and it would come straight to you you know i like the fact that i could order you know sheets of hardboard and have it delivered so i could prime it at home and then paint or i could produce my artwork and um and display them on on my social media you know if you, if you look on my instagram you'll see i've got uh, various videos that I've made on there to kind of show the process of how the paintings were made because um, I knew that people would be sitting at home and looking at it and kind of interested and to be honest I think a lot of people having that time during COVID decided to pick things up like painting and drawing and you know playing guitars and uh, learning a different language because for the first time we were all given that time that we never had before and in the professional world, it's difficult to get that time to be able to, to learn something new. And I think being able to show something like that, like a process, it, I think it kind of made people think about how they were doing things. And with a lot of the infrastructure that people put into place now uh, about being able to order or not having to go to shop, still in place now because people actually like it. Yeah, I think you're right. People, there's definitely been a shift. People have changed. And it's funny you mentioned about Instagram and you kind of showing the techniques and things on there. I can remember watching one of your videos during lockdown and I can remember how confident you were at one point with a brush and you marked like a light streak coming down from a car mm. light and you did it so bold, so confidently. And I was there thinking, how have you got the confidence to do that? Because I know if I was doing that painting, I'd be going, God, it's now or never. I'd be stealing myself for the moment and then i do it and i'd probably wreck it you definitely didn't wreck it you've made this brilliant motion that just was simple and kind of uh, helped us get there and i think yeah, but it took me 40 years to get to that point <laughs> brilliant yeah and that's exactly it so you know a lot of the time in the business world we don't get to practice things we we kind of we're in the moment in business is business we and a lot of people will avoid things like how would i describe it um doing um role plays that's the word i'm looking for so they're in the middle of doing kind of a, a role play they hate it because it's not real people mm. like being in the real world but i suppose when you're doing art when you're doing music you get to practice all the time when you're doing sport you get to practice all the time it's a different world the great thing about a thought experiment is we get to do exactly the same and that also means we get to kind of ask questions that we might not normally ask so if i said to you i've got £20,000 and I'm going to invest in some of it in you and I'm going to invest some of it in the business where do your thoughts go in terms of where a business of a of a someone in the world of a painter would invest their money what training would you get where would you put that money to good use I think I think in terms of training things like marketing advertising I think management of um, resources and money management and things like that, I think, are going to be invaluable. I think basic business, basic business operation training would be vital because you are running it as a business. Um, because you, you know, on on a, on a on a five day week, would you be painting five days a week? Well, no, you couldn't. You'd have to devote time to producing, you know, your, your marketing materials, your social media, your you're, you know, you're doing the footwork to go to different galleries or to, to different places to actually sell it. So I think, you know, the, the actual making of the, the product or the, the paintings um, is important, but then you'd need to invest specific time into 
you know the promotion of 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 what you're making otherwise what's the point um you know if, if you were to invest five thousand right now well so you know you, you probably take some of it to go and travel because uh you know the paintings are all about travel so i would go and travel to places i've never seen before you know and and make paintings of that because ultimately that's what that's what I want to make, you know. I want I want to travel to different cities. I want to go to Colombia. I want to go to Machu Picchu. I want to go to Tokyo and all these these kind of places that I've only ever seen through a photo or through a computer screen. I want yeah. to go and experience it firsthand, and then you know make something physical. You know, you you look at Van Gogh paintings and you'll see things like you know. Um, you know, hair follicles in it that came off him. Or if you look at like a Cezanne, you'll see uh, shards of, of sand from when he painted on the beach, you know, physical things of when he was in that actual place. And you don't get that from a photograph. So I think for what I do, I would use the money to travel. I would build up a massive resource of, of materials. And then you would have to, you know, look at, I suppose, marketing your work to those areas as well, because if you're selling a painting in the middle of Birmingham of a beautiful sunny beach in 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 Thailand, it's probably not going to resonate very much with people. But if you produce a painting of a of the rotunda or uh, or the bull, then people will understand it. Yeah, makes sense. And I think um, one of the questions I like to ask people when I'm talking to business, and I'll give you an example of a housing association. Um, that I was talking to only a few weeks ago and they were trying to work out what their target operating model would be and when I spoke to them what I wanted to understand was who's king in the relationship is it the tenant is it the landlord is it the council is it them as the housing association because mm -hmm. their whole organizational design would basically be determined by where they should focus their efforts mm -hmm. and I think one of the questions I was going to ask you is what's more important is it the gallery's requirement for the art is it your own requirements for the piece or is it what the end customer would buy and I think I've got a picture of what that is but tell us you know which of those three things is the most important ultimately i think the most important thing is just for the artist to be true to their vision um because without the artwork there'd be no exhibition there'd be no customer there'd be no you know um development from there i think ultimately you have to be true to what you're making you have to be true to your core fundamentals and not trying to make a carbon copy of something else because people I think would be interested in you and in what you are making and if, if you're not true to that I think people can tell very quickly so I think out of the three I think it's it's the artist's vision but I, in a business model I can see that it's it's cyclical you know there there are three things to consider you know the three points of view um you know the artist's view the 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 salesperson or the gallery's point of view and then I suppose the the, the consumer so what a beautiful way to describe it. And I think that will resonate with our listeners a lot because one of the things that our listeners will have been getting their head around a lot in the last 10 years, certainly, is authenticity. It's become like a buzzword within businesses. It's like be authentic to yourself, be authentic to what you do, be authentic to what the business does. And you've just described it beautifully there that authenticity is king, but you're also talking about the fact you can't take your eyes off the other elements that it plugs into because ultimately mm -hmm. that's what's going to make you succeed or fail. And on the 
position of failing, I, one of the things I always like to understand when I'm looking at an organizational design is to understand what the minimum viable business looks like, both upwards and downwards. And what I mean by that is, if you had to close the business tomorrow, what would that look like? So if you look at um, some of the businesses that were flourishing during the pandemic that aren't doing as well now, they're restructuring and they're downsizing, and some of them at a rapid rate. But I guarantee that some of them won't have looked at what the minimum viable business is. They'll have focused on making sun while they uh, making hay while the sun shined. And I completely get that. But I think it's really important to understand what failure looks like, what it um, not working out looks like. So if I asked you to describe the final chapter of your business and we were potentially looking at it closing, what would the things you would want the business to be remembered for? I think to be remembered for the for a body of work that I was I was proud of, for having something out in the world that, if people saw it through a photo or a screen or they saw it in real life, that it would resonate in some kind of way. So, um, after, long after I'm gone, I'm hoping that you know paintings will still exist. They'll still be a part of me out there. Um, and I think that's it. And if, if it ended up tomorrow that I couldn't paint again, well, I've I've made a series of works that I'm I'm happy with, and you know you can't ask for much more than that. Not at all. And that all sounds like legacy to me. And I have to say, a lot of businesses I talk to, particularly owner-led businesses, not only are they interested in how much can they sell the business for when they get to that point that they are ready to exit stage left, they're also really keen to make sure they've got the right legacy. They want their people to be looked after. They want the reputation of their business to be maintained. What they're not looking for is just to check in the back pocket and to walk away. They want that legacy and that body of work from their perspective to be looked after as well. So one final question to kind of uh, ponder before I kind of do a bit of a wrap up and then ask for your closing thoughts is if you were going to appoint one member of staff tomorrow, it can be any member of staff, they could be doing any job. What role would they perform? What would make what would be the most helpful thing for you? I think probably probably marketing, maybe getting out there and I don't know, maybe, maybe marketing, maybe maybe the business side of it, the the kind of all the stuff that takes that would take me away from painting. Yeah, that so, so makes that's, sense. That's, that's the thing I want to do. I just want I just want to paint. <laughs> yeah, completely. So, but why yeah. wouldn't you? Yeah, that makes, again, sense to me. And then one of the things I'd look at when I'm looking at an organizational design of a business is to work out when is the point that you change the structure? When is the point that you add people? When is the point you take people away? And when you do add those people, what are you adding with what benefit in mind? And I think marketing is a really sensible place to start based on what you've described. But the core bit I'd take away as an advisor would be, what is it we need to put in place for your business that enables you to do what you're great at? Get on with the painting. We'll sort the rest for you. That's a key focus for us. So the purpose of today was to explore some questions that may help when looking at an organizational design for one. For each business, there will be a range of variants to consider. For today, we've chosen to explore areas such as risk, ambition, vision, future structural changes, culture, goal setting, individual personal values. And we've even looked at what it's like to close a business and to continue to trade when, there's an, when the unexpected happens, such as a pandemic. Perhaps the terminology organisational design is wrong. 
and reasonably it is often confused with organisational structure. In reality, what we're looking at is what is required when designing a business or a company. We have to look at all elements. We have to consider all stakeholders, expertise available and more nuanced elements like what the business owner ultimately wants. By exploring a range of elements, we start to understand what we can influence, what we can do ourselves and what will make us succeed or fail. Today was just a thought experiment to see where the conversation would take us. We deliberately picked a tough task, blending the artistic world with the business world. We deliberately picked some more nuanced and varied questions to expand our thinking and to show what a wide range of considerations are important. We've learned that the blend is tough and that there is a reason why people keep hobbies as hobbies and why our job should not be what defines us. We've learned that no matter how talented someone is, monetizing that talent can be extremely difficult. And by doing this for a team of one, we've dispelled the myth that organizational design is all about the structure. We don't want the thing we love to be a chore and we don't want the way we finance our lives to be a drag. We spend too much time at work to be compelled by its purpose, to to not be compelled by its purpose. It'd be helpful if I got that one right. Art often sits on a higher plane and most artists do not benefit from their work in their own lifetime. For me, what Carrick has captured over the years is inspirational and I'm glad to see it recognised in galleries, in the Birmingham Art Book and on our friend Charlie's Wall. You can't put a price on that and sometimes you don't want to. The quality of Carrick's work is superb and from my perspective, I would encourage anyone to view his art buy a copy of the Birmingham Art Book, and when the opportunity arises, buy one of his very special paintings. If you want to follow Carrick, his website can be found at www.carricksadel.com. You can see some of his work at the Purple Gallery, um, and you can find some of the archive stuff on Daily Art Fix. If you want to buy a copy of the Birmingham Art Book, you can find this on Amazon. So there are plenty of places you'll be able to find Carrick, and we'll make sure that these things are included um, on the update that goes on the website about today. We'll also be doing a giveaway. We'll be giving away a copy of the Birmingham um, art book, which Carrick appears in twice with two of his wonderful paintings. And we'll also be giving away copies of designing organisations. You will see more about that in social media and on the website. And we look forward to the competition entries for that. But for today, I want to say thank you for Carrick for being a wonderful guest. And I'd just like to ask, have you got any final thoughts? No, I just really enjoyed having a conversation today. Just it was nice to think about some of these things and have a have a discussion uh, out in the open about things that you wouldn't normally think about. So thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it and um, gave me a lot to think about. That's great. So today we've taken a different angle. We've completed a bit of a thought experiment. We worked with published Birmingham artist Carrick Sadell on how to get an organisational design for one right. Hopefully for some of you, this wasn't new, but it gives you some confidence in the conversations you may, may need to have in your businesses. For some of you, it may have helped you understand the difference between organisational design and organisational structure. For the rest of you, I hope it was an enjoyable listen and that you will take the time to view some of Carrick's fantastic work. We've kept it simple and straightforward and focused on some obvious headlines and some nuanced headlines. Every business is different and as such, the organisational design needs to be as well. Knowing what questions to ask of what business is a complex art form in itself. Being scientific and formulaic can miss the point and take away the essence of what a business is all about. Thank you very much. <laughs>